0: not being emotionally there for me actually helped set up the causes and conditions that create what I'm doing right now, which is teaching people about relationships. So had my dad been the quote perfect dad, I wouldn't be talking to you right now and I wouldn't have the mission that I have. So a lot of people I think don't operate that way and they don't see that their past is actually building character to, for who they're to become and what their purpose is in life and, they don't make that connection and they're caught in a perception that my past was horrible and I can't believe my parents did this. And, and that's, uh, you know, it's understandable. Um, but at a certain point I, I wanted for my journey, I wanted to get beyond that stage.
1: everyone. Welcome back to another episode. I am pleased to have with me today Jason Gaddis, who is an author with a new book out, which we're going to talk about, a podcast host himself, and a bona fide relationship nerd who loves talking about this stuff and thinking about it and is, uh, yeah. One of my favorite podcasts is his podcast, the smart couple podcast. So I am delighted to have you on today to talk about your new book and everything related to love and repair, especially. So thanks for being here.
0: Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me, Melanie.
1: So I would love to hear a little about what inspired you to write your new book and especially anything related to repair (laughs) with respect to that. Cause I feel like that might be a theme.
0: Yeah, totally. Yeah. The book is really about repair. It's about how to get back to a good place, which I call zero. And, um, that's the, and the assumption there is that we're going through difficulties like conflicts or communication breakdowns. And I saw that this was the most common relationship problem across any human being, uh, is that we get into high stakes relationships and somewhere along the way we struggle and we are challenged with each other or ourselves in that relationship. And we often don't know what to do. And so we do what we've always done, which gets us what we've always gotten. And um, I'm encouraging people to learn, just just learn and apply yourself. And I think you'll get a different result. So I thought I'd create a book. that was a bit of a roadmap on how to navigate this very uncomfortable part of our lives.
1: Yeah. And when we're talking about repair, I think another term for that is conflict resolution, which. I prefer the term repair because I think it's more of an active verb around not conflict, right yeah. but acknowledging that a rift did happen right You only repair something when something's been broken or hurt or yeah. harmed. And I'm wondering if you could yeah, maybe give a little bit of insight into your own journey around repair in your you know love relationships because I think you know to your point, a lot of times the doing what we've always done, the roadmap we have is from our parents. So I'm wondering what repair looked like in your household, if you're willing to share as a kid and then how you maybe brought that in and and how you perhaps grew into something else.
0: Yeah, totally. My, my family was kind of conflict averse, probably like a lot of families. And I, I never really saw my parents fight and there was also when there was conflict because there was, of course, um, silence and there was distance and there was voice raising and things like that. um, It wasn't repaired ever. I don't think I ever remember the big people saying, Oh, my bad. I, I was kind of a jerk there. And a lot of us grew up in families like that. And so we, when you chronically don't see any repair happening, it's leads to kind of a distrust and a, a little bit of a vigilance around Um, Oh, okay. I guess I got to look out for myself here. I can't really rely on the relationships to, to get to a better place. I've got to kind of get to a better place on my own. And that's, uh, that creates insecurity in the person and it creates insecurity in relationships. And so I went on with my life and created a bunch of insecure, short term, short lived relationships where not only, not only was there no repair, but there was no, I did my best to avoid conflict altogether it was just uncomfortable anytime a woman was like, Hey, can we talk? Or, Hey, I have a need over here. I'd just be like, uh, go away. And then I'd feel better, you know, and I'd go drinking or climbing or something and I felt better. And I came to the conclusion it must be her cause I feel better now, you know? So I, I just did that. I just did that trip for like 10 years until I figured out I was the problem.
1: <laughs> I'd like to pause and appreciate your candor because I think that's a good example of, um, you know, I do think that there's this tendency for all of us to say, well, I think it's the other, I'm pretty sure it's the other person. I feel like it's the other person because yeah, I'm really. feeling okay now. Or, well, if he would just fill in the blank yeah. or she would just fill in the blank, if she would just mm-hmm. get over it. We would be fine. I don't I understand what the big deal is. I don't want, my favorite is on dating apps when men say drama free and looking for something drama free. Yeah, to me, That's a red flag. I'm like, ah, that doesn't Ooh. feel good. It feels like you don't really want to engage in the mess of human relationship. And that feels a little scary. Interestingly that to my system, I interpret that as fear as, Dude. Oh, relating with him sounds scary because it, it doesn't sound like he's actually available to talk about emotions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're
0: getting a, is, yeah. Yeah. You're getting a window into his, how he views life. Also. I kind of want a drama free life. Good luck with that. Have fun. <laughs> So
1: yeah, so what happened, you know, when you said, you know, you sort of discovered that it was you or however you phrase that. What how did how did you do that? What happened?
0: I was breaking up with another good woman and I felt very familiar. I tried to kind of unconsciously, indirectly break up with her, get her to break up with me so I didn't have to be the bad guy. I never wanted to be the bad guy. Uh I wanted to save face because deep down I was actually sensitive. I did I did care behind my thick plate of armor. Uh, I cared what she thought of me and I cared about my, what other people thought of me. And I was sitting in the car in a Whole Foods parking lot, you know, and we were breaking up, having the breakup conversation. I just found myself repeating what I always had said, which is like, yeah, um, maybe it's me. Yeah. I don't know. I just, I just can't really do this anymore. And, but this time when I said, maybe it's me, I was like, wait, I think it is me. Um, I think there is something going on here that, is my problem. And she, you know, was kind of like no shit guy. And, uh, I was like, yeah, maybe, uh, maybe I need some help. And she's like, yeah, you should go to counseling. And I didn't really know what counseling was. And, but I felt myself being really receptive and I drove away from that breakup, uh, feeling pretty inspired because I was like, wait, I'm onto myself here. I'm the one common denominator here. If it's true that that's, if that's true, then I can actually do something about that. That's in my control. I can't control the outside. I can control the inside. So I was pretty excited. And I, you know, soon after enrolled in grad school to get a master's in psychology and moved out of state and just busted my ass to figure this stuff out.
1: And I'm curious, did you also, you know, lean into your personal growth journey with mentorship? What was your sort of on train to that world. I mean, you mentioned counseling. I'm wondering if that was part of the yeah. the journey, and 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 I think that you also had some medicine journeys that have served you along your way. I'm wondering, oh, yeah. might be willing to share a little bit about how that served you in terms of this opening up or becoming more skilled in romantic relationship.
0: For sure. Yeah, I started going to therapy, individual therapy. Um, I enrolled in some group therapy through a training, a Gestalt training, uh, and I just was. I, I was trying to uh, join a men's group. I, you know, started studying with all kinds of different people and teachers and mentors that I thought had something that I didn't have. And they had, they seemed like they had it figured out. So I, I just started studying like a beast. And then I entered into a, rela- a real relationship with my now wife, which was quite a workshop in graduate school to, to be in a relationship and, you know, being, learning how to communicate completely differently than I historically had. And yeah, along the way, started experimenting with uh, hallucinogens again, psychedelics, um, ayahuasca, LST, psilocybin, et cetera, MDMA. And I had done a bunch of drugs in college, but with no guidance or supervision and no mentorship. And it was pretty unsafe and no one was holding any kind of container. And it was a bit of a free for all. And I, I had a couple of really profound experiences, but I had no way to integrate them and no one to talk to about them. So it wasn't until, you know, my thirties, I was starting to get smarter about how to do those things to, to assist me in growing myself.
1: Yeah. I'm wondering if you can sort of maybe take us through one memorable experience where you feel like you did gain some insight around relationship, because I remember, you know, listening to one of your podcasts and there was a topic around psychedelics and you had some really interesting things to say specifically about MDMA and just how it affected you as a partner and as a father. And I'm wondering if you can share a little about that.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's so, there's so many uh, journeys at this point. It's hard to, it's hard to pick one. Um, I I mean, each of the psychedelics and uh, has, has given me different things over the years and often it's just an opportunity to see myself more clearly. Right. And with MDMA, um, I'd say that that allowed me to confront some trauma and some old stuff that, and just fear really. And, and MDMA, as you know, is kind of takes the amygdala offline. So it allows me in a safe nervous system, relaxed way, look at something really scary and uncomfortable. And um, yeah, I had a couple of really profound experiences there that allowed me to, I just think love better and show up as a, I don't know, a more caring person, you know, um, with less, Less fear, I guess.
1: Yeah, I'm curious too. I think that what you said was meaningful around doing psychedelics or medicine of any kind unsupervised or without a sort of held container. I think doesn't necessarily lead lead to as much growth and certainly not as much integration. And I'm curious when you were doing these, these journeys, were they with your therapists or other people that were holding the space and what what did integration look like for you? Was it conversations with your partner by then, you know, that you were integrating with her or did you also integrate with the person who had held the space?
0: Yeah. Important question. When I was doing ayahuasca, for example, I got very into ayahuasca for a while and to community here. That was from the South American sort of jungle that shaman would come up and do sessions, you know, four nights in a row and year after year, many times a year. And uh, the downside of that approach was the, the sort of um, shaman's approach was very hands off. It's the kind of the work is between me and the medicine. And there's no pre-frontal or pre-intention setting there's no post integration psychotherapy all of that is not happening uh so i found myself in a in a kind of a cycle of peaks like peak experiences with ayahuasca and then deep depression or mild depression a week or two after that would last a while kind of like a fog um so i wasn't using ayahuasca in the most responsible way and i wasn't using it with a teacher that understood Western kind of psychology and the, the kind of what we might need up here in America in terms of doing this well and our trauma. And I had many friends actually get had their trauma became worse and, you know, people getting hospitalized. So I, I think there's, I'm not a big fan personally of how ayahuasca is done in a traditional way. I think it, I think any psychedelic or hallucinogen is, needs to be done in a deeply responsible way with lots of prep before, Uh, you know, basically the, the protocols they're using now for MDMA assisted psychotherapy, uh, ketamine assisted psychotherapy, et cetera, that, that, uh, is they're running clinical trials off of, and I think that's the way to do it because they're, it's just, I think the best way to get the best result. Uh, but of course when things are illegal, that's harder, right? Yeah. So ayahuasca was kind of its own like conversation. And that's just a little bit about that. Uh, when I, when I did have held circles, um, with whatever the experience was, it was always better, honestly. And then I've even had it one-on-one sessions where there was a lot of prep work where I had one facilitator. It was just me, no, not a group. I went really deep on LSD or whatever, um, you know, held space. And then hours after integrating days after still integrating meeting with the person, all of that's kind of, I think the the right way to do it.
1: And it sounds like for you, part of what it helped you integrate was letting go of some fears and some old, would you say blockages? I mean, how would you describe what you actually got out of it in terms of what you then applied to your relationship?
0: I mean, I think the biggest thing that any psychedelic has ever done for me is it helps me see the block clearly or the wound or the trauma or the incident or the thing that happened the thing that's in the way, the fear, whatever it is, so that I can work with it in a future oriented, present oriented way. That's really the bottom line. And in a lot of my sort of quote traumas are relational traumas. And so to do psychedelics alone doesn't make any sense. It's like, it's a relational experience. It needs to be held in a, with another human being, I think in a good way that can actually, that has a lot of psychological sophistication and skill. Um, So a lot of it was just that, you know, seeing something. And then again, the integration is the most important part because psychedelics just take the veil off so I can see the thing and now I can go work on it later. And I think I was coming to the table and a lot of people do this with some wanting some kind of cure or some kind of fix, or it's like, I'll get high here and I'll have a really profound experience, but it's not actually creating lasting change in me. It's just creating insight and into the experience. And that, that's huge. That goes a long way, but people have to understand how oh, the work starts like when you're sober.
1: Yeah. And so for example, if you were bullied and it felt like it was really hard to trust people, yeah. that might be an experience that would come up on MDMA around trust, right? If you're going into the, yep. going into a session with the intention of, I want a successful love relationship. I know that trust has been an issue for me in the past. This is what I'm coming with. Yeah. Maybe that's shown to you as when you were very young, let's say six, eight, nine, 10, 12, whatever age it was that you were bullied, mm-hmm. it installed in you. People aren't safe. People will right. betray you or hurt you. And you might maybe be aware of that intellectually, but perhaps it's a more body experience. Yeah perhaps on the psychedelic and you can really see, wow, this became my software. This became how I think about people. And, you know, it could be childhood experience, whatever it is, but what I'm hearing you say is then that is what you can work with after that. So it's not like the one session is oh, great. I saw it and it's cleared up. Now it's more like, Oh, this is what's been in the way of me feeling safe with a partner. And now I can work with that piece and And perhaps have a restorative experience with the facilitator. Yeah. Herself or himself, or in some cases, there are two holding space of actually when you're on the medicine, having a restorative experience of I am being seen right now, I am being heard, I am being accepted, I'm not yeah. being bullied in this moment. So there's kind of a perhaps a dual experience. Was that ever part of your
0: I, I think so, but not that much, honestly. It was more um it was more again just the seeing, the clear seeing. And it's like, okay, cool. Now I got to go do trauma work or, or I got to go do this work that I personally like to do that in, in all my experiences, honestly, the, the work I remember the most had nothing to do with psychedelics, um, at all. So, yeah.
1: And can you say a little about what that work was that was the most memorable?
0: Yeah. I, you know, I, I was, uh, years in therapy, uh, trying to work on my family of origin stuff with my parents, for example, and, you know, having a lot of anger toward my mom and toward my dad and um, feeling like they dropped the ball and whatever. And I'd go to therapy and the therapist would sort of confirm that's that narrative. And it wasn't until I met um, Dr. John D. Martini, who showed me a completely different way to look at it. And I started learning how to change my perceptions about what I experienced. And that completely changed my life. Um, instead of seeing my dad working from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., for example, and being, quote, not there for me, I got to see how him um, working so hard and not being emotionally there for me actually helped set up the causes and conditions that create what I'm doing right now, which is teaching people about relationships. So had my dad been the, quote, perfect dad, I wouldn't be talking to you right now and I wouldn't have the mission that I have. So a lot of people, I think, don't operate that way. And they don't see that their past is actually building character to, for who they're to become and what their purpose is in life. And they don't make that connection and they're caught in a perception that my past was horrible and I can't believe my parents did this. And, and that's, uh, you know, it's understandable. Um, But at a certain point I, I wanted for my journey, I wanted to get beyond that stage of anger and hurt. And I was like, I, this is, I don't want to go to my grave angry at my parents. That's a waste of my energy.
1: Yeah, totally. And, you know, you have made it your life work now to help people with relationship, which is part of why you wrote this book. (laughs) And I'm, I'm wondering if we can sort of move in that direction of talking about repair, because there are so many ways that we, as people in relationships will avoid conflict to your point, or sort of do conflict in a way that feels like I'm pushing against you Mm
0: -hmm. instead
1: of we're a team working on this. And I'm wondering if you can take us through just a few of the sort of common ways that couples fight or conflict. Uh, You know, you mentioned one, which was maybe you could call it stonewalling, but just leaving, (laughs) leaving Uh the room or, you know, departing. I can feel there's tension in the space and I leave. That's a way some people handle, handle it. What are some other common ways?
0: Yeah. There's, um, there's the types of fights that I could talk about. And then there's ways to people typically do conflict. Is there, do you have a preference there on which I'm,
1: I would love to hear both. Maybe we could start with the things people typically do and then the typical fights.
0: Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, I call them roadblocks to, to reconnection. So if we look at conflict as just a rupture in a connection, there's a disconnection, there's a snag right between two people. Um, it's like, okay, the work then becomes, how do we reconnect? How do we get back to that good place that I call zero? And there's a lot of roadblocks that people do. They put up without (laughs) knowing in their, in their best attempts, you know, and the common ones are blame defensiveness. Uh, the big ones compartmentalizing. It's not that big a deal. I'll just shove it over here on the shelf and just get on with my life, which is, you know, what my parents' generation did, which is, you know, bless their heart, like what they, the tools they had and it was what they needed to do but we don't need to do that anymore. Um, and there is a time and a place for that when we're busy. But, um, if you want to have a great relationship, compartmentalizing your shit between each other is not going to get you a good relationship. Uh, hope and pray time, you know, time will take care of it. Uh, hope and pray like, uh, yeah, I I hope it gets better. I mean, maybe it will. (laughs) It's like, guys, no, (laughs) it's not going to work. So there's a bunch. Um, uh, another one I call fracking. Um, Yeah, that's fixing, rescuing, advice giving, complaining or colluding with the person's experience or killing their experience, which is saying when someone says, I feel feel sad or I feel like this is what happened. You say, no, that's not what happened. No, that's not how you feel.
1: Yeah. Or you shouldn't feel that way. Well, you shouldn't feel sad because I didn't mean it.
0: Or I'm sorry you feel that way, which is another kind of lame sideways, you know, snarky comment. It doesn't help.
1: And then, what are some of the common fights?
0: Yeah, I, I identify five. There's probably hundreds, but I I think five I've identified as the common ones. So there's surface fights, which is just the, you know, that's the dishes aren't done, um, you didn't pay the bill, you're late, those kind of things. And if we're upset about it longer than ten minutes, it leads into one of these other four, um, which is projection fights, value difference fights, security fights, yeah, or um, uh, resentment fights. And these are the bigger ones that are very difficult for a lot of people to deal with, depending on the content, depending on what's occurring. And when people start to see, Oh, Oh, this is just me projecting my history onto you, my parents and stuff. Once they see that it's just that, or, Oh, we're just disagreeing on our beliefs here, or you want to go to public school. I want our kids to go to private school. Oh, that's what we're fighting about. That's okay. We can, we can actually like get, make some progress here as a team versus a lot of times people have no idea what they're fighting about. They really think it's about the keys or the dishes or being late or whatever the thing is. And it's like, no, often it's just something, something bigger.
1: Like, for example, the last one you mentioned was is resentment. I'm yep. wondering if you can go into that a little bit, because I would imagine some of those surface fights are really about Yeah. that one.
0: Totally. Yeah. So resentments are are great. I love resentments because resentment, when we feel resentment towards another person, it's it's an opportunity for us to, look at ourselves and go, what is it that I'm resenting? And what expectation did I create of this person that they can't meet? So resentment, just to define it is when I expect you to live according to my values, you're going to resent me. When you expect me to live according to your values, I'm going to resent you. And when I expect you to do life like I do, and you don't follow through, I'm going to be resentful. Uh, you're going to feel judged and criticized, and then I'm going to be resentful. And that just leads to all kinds of problems. And this is really common because when relationships get hard after a couple of years, we tend to, the shortcut that all of us take is we we think that if you just change, we will be better. And that's a that's a really common trap that people fall into.
1: It's interesting because I remember listening to one of your episodes once, and you said something like, if one person wants to grow and the other person doesn't, a relationship isn't going to work. And I felt like that was such a powerful way of putting it, which is if you do get into a relationship, you you kind of both have to know we're going to be doing some work together. And if you don't both want to do that, it's probably not going to work. And it feels Mm -hmm. a little bit like in our culture, the narrative is, we're not going to have to do any work together. It's it's that we get married and then it's happily ever after. And so when the work comes up, it's like, well, there must be something wrong with you. You must be the wrong partner. Yeah.
0: I must've picked of, wrong. Yeah.
1: Yes. And of course, sometimes that is true. If you're in an abusive relationship, for example, you need to get out sure. and get help. That's, there are certain sure. boundaries that are, this is not the right person. This is not, this is not okay. But outside of that, it feels a little bit like our narrative needs to shift to this is going to be hard and we're going to be a team doing it instead of this is supposed to be easy. The fact that it's not easy means it's wrong.
0: Yeah. I'm so with you. Yeah. It's like that, that dating app person that you were talking about earlier, right? No drama. I want no drama in my relationship. And that person's basically saying, I want a short term relationship where I can have sex and feel good. And then when it gets hard, I'm out. That's all they're saying, you know, and I'm going to move from short term relationship to short term relationship I don't want any drama because um, drama is bad. And it's like, no, um, you are missing. It's like someone going into the gym saying, I don't want to lift any of these weights, but I want to be in shape. <laughs> it's like, good luck with that.
1: <laughs> that's a re- that's a really good analogy. And I think that is that is the narrative. The narrative yeah. is relationships should be easy and you shouldn't have to lift any weights to do it. And I do think that there's some, you know, relationships take work and you know stick with it and there's there are some tropes around that but there's really not a lot of actual guidance which i think is something that for example your book provides and yeah. i'm i'm curious to hear a little bit about well for example the, it it seems to me that some of the time there are things that a couple can work on together and some of the time there's trauma that one or both partners has themselves that needs mm-hmm. to be addressed with mm-hmm someone and they need to get help. How can a couple know what's going on? When should they be enlisting a mentor or a third party to help them? And when do you think they can kind of work some stuff out themselves?
0: Well, this is a good question, actually, because my wife and I train couples coaches and it's really interesting um, because a lot of us do come to a relationship with our traumas and things that we need to sort of work on, whether it's with the person or without, that's just kind of a given. I think if you're in any relationship and it gets challenging, you probably have something to work on, uh, on your own. And I like that. It's like, let's go work on that thing. But with couples, what's so cool about working with a couple, if the, the practitioner is skilled is a lot of that work can happen in the couple's work. And we repair and we can really rewire our brain moment by moment, having corrective experiences with the person we live with every day. So I think it's more, there's there's more bang for your buck if you can work with an amazing couples person uh, because you're dealing with each other all day long and a, a good couples person understands that and they're trying to utilize your daily day in, day out relationship to to actually repair the pattern you know and the, and rewire the nervous system together as a team i think that's really powerful and what i don't like is when a person says to their partner you have a lot of trauma you should go work on that and it's as if i don't like attracts like in any relationship so while they have they might have the overt trauma cuz they got really traumatized as a kid you might have more of the neglect trauma where you got nothing and it seems like you were fine but you just learn to dissociate away from the deep neglect that was going on in your family, uh, you wouldn't be with a person who's quote, more traumatized than you. In other words, you, you've you got your equal you've got your healing partner and your healing buddy. And I, I think it's way cooler to work on it together. And yeah, once in a while, I might need to go do something with someone else. Uh, I've certainly done that uh, numerous times in, on and off in my relationship. Yeah, but I think it's, faster in a way together.
1: Yeah. And that kind of brings us back to having a partner who's willing to play. Cause I know a lot of my male clients have been with, <laughs> been with women partners who either refused to go to therapy or they would go once or twice. And once there was pushback or challenge in the therapy, they didn't want to do it anymore. Yeah, And so you can't really work on a relationship when one person doesn't want to do it. And that's, you know, that's just something to notice because I've, I've seen that a couple times. Um, and, yeah. and then in terms of the, yeah, maybe doing some kind of work in addition to the couples therapy, I'm wondering specifically for something like sexual trauma, do you ever refer out for that or supplement um, either side, men or women with sexual trauma?
0: Yeah, for sure. Yes. And, if this, you know, the, to the couple, obviously in sexual trauma case, uh, the couple is wanting to probably overcome that hurdle together. Right. And I think the most powerful thing for them to do is get deep, good guidance on how to do that together. And sometimes the other partner's too triggered, too unwilling to whatever. And this is why people like you and all these amazing practitioners, whether it's hands-on work or hands-off work or trauma work or SE work or whatever is so awesome is because we can go to practitioners and, and work through some of that trauma and then come back to our relationship a little less afraid, a little more willing, but still the, the, you know, my wife and I have had plenty of sexual challenges over the year over the years. And, um, the greatest healing is always together. In the bedroom.
1: Yeah. I'm glad you spoke to that because I think I was talking to my co-coach, Jason Lang about neurogenesis and the fact that there are certain experiences we have in our lives when we can actually generate new brain cells and new patterns. And one of them is psychedelics, but another one is love, love and the experience Mm -hmm. of being loved yeah. actually can help you create new brain cells. Right. And I think that's sort of what you're pointing to of the actual experience of being loved or accepted or seen or heard in a way so that feeling. you weren't when yeah. you were maybe young or when you needed something from a caregiver is restorative and it can actually change your brain.
0: Yeah. I mean, setting a boundary and having your partner listen to you can, um, you know, develop new neural pathways in your brain. It's very healing.
1: Yeah. Um, so (laughs) can you say a little bit more about, um, how you guide couples through repair? So let's say that there's a couple who's in distress, (laughs) some kind of distress. And let's say that they're, they've got a pattern where, uh, one person is sort of coming towards the other one a lot of the time and the other one's backing away. So maybe mm-hmm. you could call it one is it got anxious avoidant or sorry, anxious attachment patterns. And the other has got avoidant attachment patterns. And of course those can change depending on who you're with, but let's just say sure. this, this couple's yeah. dance. So she's coming towards him and he's kind of backing away.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, what, what are some things that you cover in the book in terms of what they can do themselves versus with, with a practitioner? Because I think, a lot of times the anxious person's like, well, you should just come towards me more. (laughs) You know, if you just, if you just came towards me more, everything would be fine. And the avoidant person's like, well, if you just needed less, you know, everything would be fine.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you're talking about the most common, really the most common relationship dynamic and I call it just the seek avoid dynamic. And, um, if a couple can, so in the book I I talk about this dynamic and I, I just talk about, um, if you can relax, knowing that it might be that way for a long time, maybe the rest of your life. How are we gonna be a team around this? Because your nervous system's wired to um, withdraw and my nervous system's wired to get anxious and pursue. Given that, and it's like lock and key, it's like perfect fit for both of us to, to learn some new things here. Given that that's our dynamic, what are we gonna do about that? And the first thing I always teach is, which is also in the book, is the concept standing for three. I take a stand for me and my nervous system. I take a stand for you and your nervous system. And I take a stand for us, our collective nervous system. And when we we take a stand like that, and we agree that this is our position, we're not gonna bail out on each other. So even the avoidant person is like, wait, right, I'm over here withdrawing and retreating, which is my pattern, because that's what I did as a kid. And I know it's ultimately not good for us. And wait, I made a commitment and yeah, all right, this makes my partner anxious and got it. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I need to come back. I need to name a return time. For example, I'll be back within 24 hours. I'll be back within an hour. Uh, I'll text you back within two hours. Those kind of things um, help the other person. You're looking after them. You're considering them because you took a stand for them and you took a stand for us. And if it's not, if you're, like I always say, if it's not good for one person, it's not good for us. So we, we're operating in a, in a mindset and a paradigm that has to shift. And so couples can really win, which just means doing better and being more successful and fulfilled over time if they adopt this type of mindset. And then there's lots of practices we could go into.
1: And I'm imagining that in that scenario, because it would be, I imagine it would be soothing to have some agreements around perhaps the avoidant person saying, I will be back yeah. within a day, or I will, you know, even just I will be back, yeah. <laughs> leaving right. forever would be soothing. <laughs> and I imagine on the other side, giving space or allowing space. I'm I'm just wondering if you can speak a little bit to that experience, because a lot of times yep. an avoidant experience is fear of being suffocated or fear of being yeah. engulfed, engulfed or engulfed. Yeah. And so what would be soothing to that person? Like how could their partner adjust to help soothe their fear of being engulfed?
0: Yeah. I mean, again, if, if we know each other, I know that about you, right. I know, right. Oh God, if you, if if I get too in your grill, this sets off alarm bells for you and you're going to go into your withdrawal pattern and you know, you're not going to want to be around me. But I the avoidant needs to understand where that anxiety comes from, just like the anxious person needs to understand where the withdrawal comes from, and imagine a little boy or girl who was hurt as a kid, that's what they did. that was their strategy, like good for them, like good call, and yeah, it's kind of getting in the way now. so what 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 again can we do to reassure each other here so if i'm um the the person that's anxious has to work on. I need to relax a little more and give give space and offer space because that's ultimately what's going to bring you back. It's not me going like this, feeling needy and clingy on the outside and feeling very scared and desperate. They, they have to like really work with like, oh yeah, that doesn't work. I've got to be able to tolerate my own discomfort here a little longer. I got to learn to meditate, and be with myself, be with that scared child in me. Whew, be with the anxiety, ride the waves of that and get stronger in my fear of abandonment or whatever, so that I can actually be here for myself because it's an opportunity and a practice to be here for myself while they go away. Right.
1: Yeah. I'm curious if you ever coach people on the the anxious person reaching out for some kind of connection with a friend during that period? Is it good for yeah. them to get some other connection? You know, are there?
0: Yep, are there- it, it helps. <laughs> it's, it's never gonna be the same as the intimate partner because it's not the place of trigger. And it's it's a great suggestion. It's a great tool to have in our tool belt is to be able to reach for the coach, the therapist or a friend in those moments of need to, to off-gas, to vent, to talk about my anxiety, um, to hold my hand while I breathe through the anxiety, you know, whatever, that's great that can only help. And, um, again, the dojo is how do I, how do we do this together every day and how do we become better and better at handling each other under stress when you go away and I pursue, like how do
1: we do that? And I would imagine it's pretty, it's pretty gratifying for you and your coaches to watch couples actually improve their relationships in this way. I I doubt it's it's an overnight experience, but I I imagine you working with people over months or years and seeing how far they've come versus where they started.
0: Yeah. I mean, let's, let's just talk about me for a minute. Like I'm as a client in my, just my own work, um, walking the the talk, it's like, this is hard stuff. You know, I have a nerve, I have my own nervous system patternings after 14 years of marriage, 18 to get 18 years together with my wife we still have patterns, deep nervous system patterns. And, um, you know, it's still confronting at times. And it's pretty cool to see the progress we've made over a decade, you know, like, wow, we've gotten better. We we've, we've gotten more efficient. And then when we hit our wall, we have months or whatever the time is where we're kind of struggling and we can't figure it out. And then we finally have a breakthrough and we're like, ah, oh, okay. We found a better way to repair now. We've upgraded our repair process because we're different now. The kids are older and our needs have changed a little bit. So now we we can't do what we've always done. We've got to like, you know, step up and upgrade. So it's been really, really powerful to see not only myself, but in the people I work with.
1: I think that's a really good point you just made too in terms of the life cycle of a relationship because parenting changes drastically from when the children are infants to toddlers, to yeah. you know, six to nine, and then teenagers. Those are all really different ways of parenting and bring up different shit for people.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and I would just, because I worked with survivors of sexual abuse for so long, I would also just shout out that sometimes trauma will arise when your children get to be the age that you were when something happened. Yeah, so it, it seems very mysterious why now it feels like all this is coming up, I'm having nightmares again. That's very common and I've seen that repeatedly that when a yeah. child or children gets to that age where something happened, it's re-triggered for you and it's yep. it's up now ready to be.
0: Yeah, you got it. You know that, it. exactly. It's, pr- it's pretty cool. It's the parent's opportunity then to do their developmental work at the stage where they got stuck or traumatized or hurt. Absolutely. Otherwise parents start parenting from a from a really triggered place and, and then asking their kids to do their work for them, which isn't cool.
1: Yeah, which is often when the kids adapt in weird ways to help (laughs) in unconscious weird ways that just perpetuate the cycle of weirdness. Um, yeah. So in terms of the, um, back to the, the common fights, it feels a lot like the common fights can become endless and cyclical. Uh And I'm wondering, you know, when people are reaching out for, for couples coaching in your experience, are they already in distress? And if so, how much of the time would you say that they are able to get to repair?
0: Yeah, I'd say it's not always that they're in distress. Some couples just wanna um, upgrade, right? Or or they're just, they're stuck on one thing and they're not, there's no distress going on. They're just a little stuck. And like, you know, we're a little stuck and we haven't been able to, we tried pretty hard, um, but we haven't been able to figure this out on our own. So we we need an outsider people like that are pretty relaxed they're really fun to work with cuz they're they're both completely invested and on board and then there's the people in distress and and usually it's you know the, there's a lot of finger pointing and um they're really stuck and they might not have the language they have no idea why they're stuck they've never heard of attachment they don't even know what repair like what what is what is that you know um there's just a lot of people that are you know they're just blind to to this and they they did purchase a fantasy and now they're in the weeds and they're just like, Ugh. <laughs> they don't even really want to be there, but their partner's like, come on, we can do this. But yeah, to see that couple make progress is pretty, pretty amazing.
1: And do you find that a lot? I mean, do you find that that it, it is possible for that couple that is starting out from, Oh yeah. I thought we, I, you know, I thought this would work. It's not working. It's not been working for a while. I don't understand it. What the hell is repair? I've never heard of attachment. You know, that's they've got a long way to go. But you you do see that. That's totally. to me, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it's cool, and it's I'd say maybe less common for that person, that couple to make fast progress. Uh, the work is a little slower, and the buy-in takes longer. And you know, um, I mean, my wife could probably speak to this even more than I could because she's she's in the trenches more than I am these days. But
1: I'm also wondering, you know. In terms of a common pattern, a common pattern I've seen in the men that I've worked with is being in a sexless marriage where co-parenting, the co-parenting part is running fine. The household part is running fine. The sex is not happening. Um, I'm curious, have you worked with couples like that? And what have you found around any any patterns around that? I'm specifically thinking of the man wants more intimacy Mm-hmm. sex sex but also affection that that comes up for a lot of my clients is not just about the sex it's yeah. about the closeness it's about the closest yeah. physical affection the the felt sense of love and warmth and and closeness is missing and yeah. and often she's sort of interpreting it as you only want sex or whenever you touch me you only want sex and they're just that part's not working at all yeah I'm curious if you if you work with couples around that and what you've found
0: Totally. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because there's a lot, there's a lot of layers here in your question. Um, and that kind of couple, right. Um, so a couple of possibilities are we, I I challenge the man in this case, what are you, what have you been doing and not doing to make it safe and make the on-ramp nice and inviting for your partner? How are you behaving in a way that's creating, um, you know, a a beautiful on-ramp here that's safe and works for this particular person. Uh, and can you own anything there and take responsibility for anything? Another layer possibly could be that this guy has historically used sex to, for connection. Like that's the way he gets into his heart. That's the way he gets into his body. That's the way he feels better about himself. It's stress relief. You know, a lot of men use masturbation as stress relief. So, you know, is that going on? I don't know that that needs to be looked at. Um, what is the, you know, what happened? When did this start? Um, was there an event or is it just the, you know, the kids came and all of a sudden we just became co-parents and we started running a business called our family and we forgot about each other and we never prioritized us and we never did date nights. We never got a sitter and the years went by and I was hoping and it got better. And then the guy just was like, well, and I just kind of started going to porn and, you know, cute chicks on Instagram. And, and I just sort of took care of myself and I just didn't bring it up because anytime I did, it didn't go well. Like you know, this is the kind of shit people do and years go by. Right. And so a lot of that, my work is about helping people clear a lot of the resentments there and get back to a place of like, I feel safe with you. And I feel when we feel safe, we feel interested and attracted and we're willing to open our bodies. And, um, so that's, that's more of my approach into
1: that. And so it sounds like you have seen couples that were able to navigate that part. And come to repair around it.
0: I've seen both go both ways, divorce, like, okay, we're done. I'm just so over it and over you and not attracted anymore to, wow, we can, we can recover here and we can reignite our sex life, uh, but it's going to require, we're going to have to cross the gap of fear and clear any resentments thrown in the way. And we're going to have to really respect each other. And we're going to have to like, make this a very high priority and have dates, weekly sex dates or intimacy dates, whatever the kids are at school. We on a Tuesday morning, it's like us time in the bedroom. We're naked. It doesn't mean we have to have sex. It just means we're going to, we're going to put ourselves in a position to like face each other and face our fears and couples that are willing to do that. And that's, that's uncomfortable work. Um, but the reward is, is there waiting for you if you're willing to do it,
1: you know? I love that. That's a great catchphrase that the reward is there. If you're both willing to play. Yeah. I remember researching a couple's therapy modality years ago and they were very clear. They said, this is not a guarantee that your relationship will work, but you will figure out whether your relationship will work. Uh So you will either stay together and it will be better, or you will come to a fork in the road where it's like, this isn't, this is not a feasible relationship. If one person is willing to do the work and the other one is not interested. That's not feasible. So
0: yeah, I love that.
1: Yeah. It's not a given, but you will know <laughs> it was yeah. sort of do these six sessions and you will know. And totally. they, you know, I thought that was a really smart way of putting it instead of this is magical and it will work for everyone because
0: it's just not going to
1: complication. And the, the magic of a relationship is that there are two humans there. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And,
1: and, 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 there's an alchemical thing that happens, which is any two humans interacting will be doing some kind of dance. And yeah. so it's not just one or the other. And that's, you know, this the same person might have an avoidant pattern with their friends and an anxious pattern with their partner. And yeah. it's the same person, but yep. the dance is different and that's, different. that's okay. That's, there's nothing wrong yep. with that. But part of what I'm hearing is, yeah, the awareness around, you know, how are you soothed and how am I soothed and Mm -hmm. how do we create a team uh, experience around that? Because for example, I think for some people, when there's tension in the space, they want to be held Mm -hmm. or they want physical touch and for others that doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel soothing. And so sometimes we'll reach out and, you know, stroke someone's back or do something that we would want and they kind of brush us off. And now we feel even worse, right? We feel even more like we've, they don't want us. They don't appreciate us. They're just being difficult when really they're trying to feel safe in their Mm -hmm. body. That doesn't feel soothing to them in that moment. And so awareness around that is much more like, oh, I don't need to take it personally. You know, she doesn't like that. That doesn't feel good in this moment when we're having tension. It feels too much. I'm too close. There's it's, it's just too much. Yeah versus in other moments, it might be okay. And it's not that I'm bad, or there's something wrong with me. But oh, that's, that's her pattern. That's her way Mm -hmm. of experiencing relationship. And that clarity can make all the difference.
0: Yeah. And I think uh, I like what you're speaking to. and, And I think both parties in that example, I'm hearing could be flexing their resiliency muscles so that when I try something with you, and it doesn't work, I don't collapse into shame. And I and now we're dealing with that and I'm just kind of like in my shame pile and then now I've dropped you and I've dropped us and I'm just self-absorbed into my shame spiral. Um, it takes a lot of work to allow yourself to be hurt, your hurt feelings and like s- stay upright and stay in connection. That's that's a little bit of work there.
1: That's totally true. And I would imagine that's part of what you work with couples around and what your coaches do is Tell me a little about what your what your fight looks like, or what your tension pattern feels like. Do you do you ever have that? People like not dissect a fight, but walk me through what what happened. Like a, oh, yeah. You-
0: or yeah, let's let's redo it right now. Um, And so let's let's just you don't even have to tell me. Just do do a do over right now, and I'll be the facilitator. And when you guys get stuck, I'll come in and just we'll do something different. So when the man, for example, has got his heads down, head down, he's just like I'm, like no. Nope. Eye contact. Look at her step right now. You got this, breathe. Just look at her again, you know, so he can like do it with a little bit of guidance and a little coach coaching us right there at his side, you know?
1: I think that's really powerful. And it, it does feel almost like, yeah, coaching of an, uh, of a sport of some kind of doing replay and then trying something different and seeing how that feels
0: and people are like i can't do it it's too hard i can't look at them it's like yeah you can look at them like <laughs> you can too like don't you're like no
1: <laughs> oh that's great um so yeah i'm wondering if you we're going to start to wrap up here but if you could just um say a little bit about what the response to the book has been or i, I mean i'm imagining that you've shared it with people that are starting to put it into practice what the feedback yeah. is
0: well, yeah. we're still in the early phases cuz it just came out a week or so ago, but um the people that have already blasted through the whole book are like this is the, this book just changed my life. Um but a week is not enough time to <laughs> to see the results, right? So, you know, ask me in a couple months. Um but what I know is I've been teaching this content for years and when people what I know is when people apply themselves and they practice it regularly and they do the action steps for example, they see a a permanent shift. For example, listening, I give people, I teach a whole listening process that's different than how people normally listen. And it's really powerful. And it it's like, okay, my relationship with my teenagers have completely changed. My relationship with my husband's changed. Uh, I'm seen as like the leader at work. Holy shit, I just got a raise. Like, you know, there's there's a lot of the ripple effect is huge just by learning a couple little skills around listening, for example. It takes it takes things to the next Level
1: is this listening until the other person feels understood?
0: That's right. You got it, Lufu. You've you've heard me talk about. I've
1: it. heard you talk about it. I really like that because the goal is for the other person to feel understood. Yeah. Not I heard what you said.
0: <laughs> yeah. See. And now let me share all the shit that I'm mad about. <laughs> it's not listening. And waiting my turn is not listening.
1: <laughs> right. And it and it gives a concrete goal. Oh, I get it. I get it. My goal is to listen until he or she, or they feel understood. Yeah. There's a, it, it gives a frame for, that's what I'm going for. This is my yeah. intention.
0: Yeah. Thanks for seeing that. Exactly. And that, that's powerful for people. And if, if you actually commit to that goal, and granted once in a while, we're with a pain in the ass person who's no matter how hard we do it or perfectly we do it, they're never going to say, yeah, you got it. But most reasonable people are going to be like, yeah, thank you. you know, I feel mostly understood. It feels a lot better now. Thank you. And then they're now ready to listen to you.
1: Yeah, there's an alchemy there that something happens once we feel understood. Yeah. That changes the equation.
0: Changes things.
1: It changes things, yeah. Cool, so where can people find the book? And also if they're interested in working with you or one of your coaches.
0: Yeah, thanks. Getting to zerobook.com is probably the best place. Um, The book is obviously there and you can kind of click a button and it takes you to either Amazon or Barnes or bookshop.org or whatever you want to support. And there's a conflict quiz where you can determine your conflict style, uh, on that page and some other fun resources if you're interested. And then the relationship school podcast, there's a link there if you want, but you can also just look that up on your phone.
1: And then one last question is, um, I think this is pretty obvious, but I, I work with a number of men, I'd say probably half my clients are in, in relationship and half are not. Yeah. How much of this work would you say one can do? when one is
0: not in partnership? 100% of it. Yep, the fire is just usually not as hot. Um, so you might not be triggered as often, but um, you can practice, you're in a relationship with people all day, right? Um, your coworkers, your siblings, your kids, your parents, your whoever's, your friends, um, all the people judging you on Facebook. Like there's lots of practice opportunities, <laughs> I think. And you can also meet, cool people in communities like yours or mine or wherever, where you can start practicing. Like we have probably half our community and people that listen to our podcast are single. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you spoke to that because I know I would say that I've learned a lot about repair and how to, I've had multiple conversations with friends where I've said, I don't normally do this. What I normally do is just cut someone out because they hurt my feelings, but I, I want to practice something different with you. (laughs) So this thing happened and it hurt my feelings and I'm scared that you won't receive that well. And so I was just going to duck and run, but I'm trying something new. And right. some of the time that's been received some of the time it hasn't, but yeah. I feel much stronger and more powerful in my ability to out myself of yeah. I'm pulling away. I, my feelings were hurt. I'm starting to go like this, I'm you know, yep. pushing you away. I'm, you can't see it, but I'm pu- I'm pushing you away or, yeah. and I wasn't going to tell you, I was just going to just, Quietly go away,
0: Just disappear. Yeah,
1: disappear. And I'm choosing something new, gonna see how this goes. And yeah. I've, it's almost always been received well, but it's valuable practice that I didn't need a partner to do with. I had yeah. friends. I, like That's you right. said, we're in relationship all the time. So there's plenty of opportunities to practice. There's lots of different people and ways to do relational practice that don't require being in a romantic partnership right this minute.
0: That's right. Yeah. And you modeled that beautifully. I mean, there's there's other little scripts in the book, uh, but that's exactly right. You led with vulnerability. You talked, you just outed yourself. You owned something. That stuff goes a long way. And the, the, it's kind of a friend filter. You know, it's like the people that can handle that kind of communication are, are like, wow, thank you. That's, a, that's the kind of people we want in our life. And the people that make you wrong for that, or it's like very clear c- communication of what kind of people you're with. And it's like, hmm, do I want to keep being in relationship with those kind of people?
1: Yeah. That was my experience was 90% of the time it, it went well. And yeah. they said that was really brave. Yeah. I have never had anyone say that to me <laughs> and I'm glad because I wouldn't have wanted to lose you. And one, I remember one memorable time where, what did he say? He was like, well, you shouldn't feel that way because dot, dot, dot. And I just thought, yeah, no, cause this was really hard for me to share. And that didn't feel, I didn't really feel met. And so now I'm going to make a more empowered choice to not be in connection with you instead of just blinking away.
0: (laughs) Nice. That's awesome.
1: (laughs) Okay, great. So I think that that pretty much covers things. You said it's getting to zero,
0: getting to zero book.com and the book is getting to zero, how to work through conflict in your high stakes relationships.
1: I like that part about high stakes because especially once there are kids involved, you know, it feels really Mm. important. Like I really want the to work there are stakes here that i care deeply about yeah
0: even if you're divorced and co-parenting it's like the stakes are still high and um it's in your best interest to learn how to communicate better
1: especially since you are now the role model for your children
0: totally yeah show them the way
1: Hey guys, this is Mel.
0: And this is Jason. You've probably heard me on at least a few episodes by now.
1: And we coach together in part because we know that it's when the masculine and the feminine come together that we are the most powerful. So we wanted to let you know about a free training that we put together for you guys.
0: It's about how to take back control of your love life. We are absolutely inspired to help guys like you take all all of the amazing ideas that Mel has introduced to you on this podcast and actually put them into practice, bring them into your life to create lasting change.
1: So if you're interested in that, just go to evolutionary.men slash training to sign up. If you've been looking for a way to go a little bit deeper than just this podcast, this is the opportunity for you.
0: Again, that's evolutionary.men slash training, and you're going to get a much deeper dive with Mel and I.